Thank you, musicians. Let's pray as we prepare to hear from the Lord's word. You are the holy God. There is none like you. It's so wonderful to sing your praises, so wonderful to meditate on you, to think about you. But now, holy God, we want to hear from your word. We want to know, God, what you would have us know. We want to walk in the way that you would have us walk, especially, God, when it comes to evangelism. Fire up our hearts for this. Teach us, Lord, so that we can be faithful witnesses of you. In Jesus' name, amen. It was one of the most dramatic diplomatic confrontations in the history of the ancient world. In 168 BC, the king of Syria, Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, invaded Egypt. By this time, Syria and Egypt were two Greek kingdoms that had long been enemies since they both emerged after the death of Alexander the Great in 330 BC. Under Antiochus IV, Syria had gained the upper hand against Egypt and were closing in to lay the death blow. Meanwhile, an increasingly powerful Roman Republic did not wish to see one of these two kingdoms defeated by the other, since Victoria's state might soon become strong enough to become a threat to Rome. So, as Antiochus IV closed in on the Egyptian capital of Alexandria, the Roman Senate dispatched an ambassador, an elderly senator named Gaius Papilius Linus, to deliver a message to the Syrian king. Stop the invasion or face war with Rome. One Roman historian records what happened next. After, the crossing, after crossing the river at Eleusis, about four miles from Alexandria, he, that's Antiochus, was met by the Roman commissioners, to whom he gave a friendly greeting and held out his hand to Pompilius. Pompilius, however, placed in Antiochus' hand the tablets on which was written the decree of the Senate and told him, first of all, to read it. After reading it through, he said he would call his friends into council and to consider what he ought to do. Papilius, stern and imperious as ever, drew a circle round the king with the stick he was carrying and said, before you step out of that circle, give me a reply to lay before the Senate. For a few moments, he hesitated, astounded at such a peremptory order, and at last replied, I will do what the Senate thinks right. Not till then did Papilius extend his hand to the king as to a friend and ally. Antiochus evacuated Egypt at the appointed date, and the commissioners exerted their authority to establish a lasting concord between the brothers as they as, as yet hardly made peace with each other. Quite remarkable. Can you picture the scene? This Syrian king in his kingly robes, his armor, weapon at his side, accompanied by his victorious army, stopped in his tracks by one Roman ambassador with an ultimatum. This ambassador had prepared his remarks and had acted boldly with Antiochus, even refusing to allow this great Syrian king time to consult with advisors. No doubt, if Antiochus wanted, he could have cut down this Roman messenger and his companions. 
Yet this senator was not afraid because he knew the power of the state he represented. If the Syrian king truly were foolish enough to strike down a Roman ambassador, well, the wrath of Rome would make sure the king did not get away with it. Yet as impressive as this scene is from history, the Bible tells us of an even more amazing and more important ambassadorship. According to 2 Corinthians 5, which we read together last week, God has appointed us, he has appointed Christians as his ambassadors. And we are not sent to merely reconcile two warring earthly kingdoms. We are sent to reconcile and warn the world to be reconciled with God. Unlike Papilius, though, or actually, let me say this, the power of the state that we represent is much greater than the empire of Rome. We speak on behalf of the almighty God and the king of the universe. This God declares not only that he will enable us, he will provide for us, he will avenge us any persecution that we suffer, but he also promises that he himself will go with us in every gospel conversation we have on his behalf. We truly have a great ambassadorship, much greater than even Papilius did. But are we as faithful as an ambassador as he was? Are we prepared with God's message? Are we giving it accurately? Are we bold with it? Are we strategic with it? Have we become distracted from our calling as ambassadors? Or if we are indeed seeking to fulfill it, are we doing it well? How ought we to act and to speak as ambassadors for Christ? That's what I want to talk about with you today. This is Disciplines of Grace, Evangelism, Part 2. If you weren't with us last week, then understand that today we are building on what we previously studied regarded our need as Christians to proclaim God's gospel and make new disciples of Jesus. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 4.7 that we Christians are to discipline ourselves for godliness. That is, we are to voluntarily commit to self-denial and the hard training of an athlete in order to please Christ and grow spiritually. The spiritual discipline, it should show up in certain commitments, certain pursuits, a commitment to the Bible, a commitment to prayer, a commitment to the church, but also a commitment to evangelism. We must discipline ourselves for evangelism. In part one of our study, which, I, like I said, we did last week, we looked at the why of evangelism, why it is that we should discipline ourselves in this way, and we overviewed four main reasons from the Bible. Number one, in doing so, you will obey God's command. Evangelism is a command. Making disciples is a command. Number two, you will show God's love which is part of our being obedient. We, wanna, we have been loved by God. We want to show his love to the world, and he commands us to do so. Number three, we will magnify God's glory. When you discipline yourself for evangelism, when you're obedient in that way, you will not only result in magnified praise to God as people repent and believe, but also your simple obedience and your suffering for Christ will give him glory. And then finally, number four, you will demonstrate God's power. The ability 
to be an evangelist, even to convert someone, is not in you. It's in God. But when you are faithful to be his messenger, you allow God to put his power on display through you. Now, I left off last week by teasing the how. We know that we ought to do this work for Christ. We know why, but how should we do it? Well, here again, God doesn't leave us in the dark. He actually tells us from the scriptures how we are to make disciples, how we are to evangelize. And in keeping with the pattern of our previous topical studies, I'd like to present to you six principles from the Bible to maximize your effectiveness in evangelism. Six principles from the Bible to maximize your effectiveness in evangelism. And this first principle is so important. Well, as I put together this message, I realized we needed a whole message just for this first principle. So that's what we're going to do today. I thought we'd cover all six today, but we won't. We'll do one today, pick up the other five next week. The first principle from the Bible for maximizing your effectiveness in evangelism is, number one, evangelize biblically. Evangelize biblically. Yes, I know maybe that's not a little unexpected, but brethren, you must know, you are not free to determine what message you are going to bring to others or how you are going to say it. Christ has given you the essential what and how in the Word. Now, not all of us are going to evangelize in exactly the same way, but if we are being faithful to what the Lord has commanded in His Bible, we must adhere to a fundamental biblical standard. We must evangelize biblically. And that means at least three things. These will be the subpoints for this first principle. This starts with 1A. You must get the gospel message right. You must get the gospel message right. At this point, please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, we'll be looking at verses 1 to 5. Page 1152 in the Pew Bible. Page 1152. So the context here is that Paul is dealing with a misunderstanding in the Corinthian church when it comes to the believer's coming resurrection. Believers are going to die, but they will rise again. There was a misunderstanding about this in the Corinthian church, and as part of dealing with this issue, Paul is going to show how the believer's coming resurrection is tied with Christ's resurrection as taught in the gospel. So before he gets to the coming resurrection issue, he wants to rehearse what the basic gospel message is, which is the text I want to read with you. So look now at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 5. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. We'll just stop there. Now, notice Paul's introductory words in verses 1 to 2. Paul says he is making known again the gospel. In Greek, euangelion. It means good news. Paul says that this gospel that he is making known once again, it is the same saving good news that he had first preached to the Corinthians. 
It's the same good news that they received and have continued to keep and believe. He didn't come up with something new. This is what he told them before. In the beginning part of verse 3, Paul gives a few further clarifications. He says that this message that he's about to rehearse is of first importance. It's primary. It's the starting point. It's fundamental. And he says that he delivered or handed down to the Corinthians what he also received. In other words, Paul didn't come up with this. It was given to him, and he's just passing it on. Now, from where did Paul get it? Did he get it from certain pious and creative men? Did he get it from the other apostles? No. Paul got it from Christ himself. As he says quite explicitly in Galatians 1.12, I did not receive this from men. I received this from God. I received this from Christ. So this rehearsed gospel that Paul is about to declare, it is not a gospel. It is the gospel, the gospel of Christ himself, which the apostles preached, all of them, and the true church believed and has believed and has held fast unto salvation. This is the gospel. So what is it? Well, the rest of verses 3 to 5, they present a fundamental summary. Understand that there, is, there are some things assumed in this text as background, some things that are to be understood from other scriptures. But this is the basic message that both Paul preached and that you and I are to preach. So let's see it. Verse 3b. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Now there is a lot packed in to that meaningful statement. And let me bring it out for you just a little bit. The God who created everything, including us, commanded us from the beginning to obey and worship him alone. God commanded us to think, speak, and act perfectly, just like him, to be like him, to actually represent him as image bearers before the universe. We were created as under rulers. We were, in doing this, to rely on him, to enable us to do it, to give us life, to deliver to us what is truly good. But our ancient parents, just like us today, rebelled against this good design of God. We do the same. We do not worship God alone, who is the only one worthy of worship as the creator, as the good, as the perfect God, but we worship other gods. We worship ourselves. We worship the things of this world. We rebel, therefore, against God's commands, saying we do not care to be like him or to do what he's told us to do. We do not have to trust him. We want to choose for ourselves how to live, where we will find good, where we will even find life. We, therefore, do not tell the truth like God does, at least not all the time, but we lie. We do not love and forgive others as God does, but we hate and hurt others, especially when they hate and hurt us. And we do not find contentment in God and what he has determined to give us, but we covet, we lust after what is not our own. 
All this is what the Bible calls sin. It's missing the mark. It's not being like God. It is failing to be like God and disobeying what he has commanded us. This is sin. And God warned our first parents that if they rebelled and sinned, they would die. And because God is holy, faithful, and just, he had to keep his word. God punishes with death all those who sin. All who are not perfect like he is, all those who miss the mark, they will receive death as the penalty. And not just physical death, but eternal death. The forever conscious torment in a place of darkness that the Bible calls hell. And because we were born sinners, and because we have all sinned in our lives, not just once, but countless times, countless times we have fallen short of God's standard, God's glory, and we are all under the sentence of death with nothing we can do to save ourselves. There's nothing we can do now to fix what is an imperfect record, Moreover, even our attempts at offsetting our evil with good works, it only offends God because our good works, so-called, are only self-righteous and tainted by pride and selfishness. And there is nothing we can do. We are all under the sentence of death for sin. Yet, even after the very first sin, God promised that he would provide a Savior a savior for sinful mankind to deliver them from death. And more and more came to be written about this savior as time went on, as the scriptures came to be put together. It was revealed that this savior would be called Messiah or Christ, two terms that just mean anointed one. And it was foretold that this Christ would come and die for his people's sins so that, he, so that they, rather, might live and be reconciled to God, made holy and clean and saved and safe before God. And you know what? This is exactly what happened. This is exactly what happened when God sent his son, Jesus, into the world. Though God, the son of God, took on human flesh and he lived a perfectly righteous life, the one that you and I ought to have lived. He lived a perfectly righteous life, and then he died an innocent death on a cross, which is a method of execution. He was killed by sinful men as a substitutionary sacrifice from God. They didn't realize they were doing this, but this is what God was accomplishing. Like an Old Testament lamb offered in place of a worshiping sinner. To make that sinner accepted before God, Jesus Christ presented himself in place of all those who believe in him. He died on their behalf. He, on that cross, took all of their sins. He took all of your sins if you are in Christ. He bore them on himself. He experienced the penalty of it. He received the suffering of it, which is eternal, but he could experience in a finite amount of time, because he is God, he experienced all of that on the cross, and he paid it in full. Meanwhile, he gave his perfect record of righteousness to those who believe in him. 
like a garment. So that they might be clothed in righteousness. They might be made acceptable to God and freed from God's just wrath forever. This substitutionary life and death of the Son of God, this was no accident. This was no scrambling plan B from God. This is what our good God had planned all along. It would give him glory, and he brought it to pass at the right time. And Paul and the other apostles of the New Testament, they don't just testify that it was foretold, but that it actually happened. Jesus came and died for our sins according to the Scriptures. But then, verse 4a, and then he was buried. This work on the cross was no trickery, sleight of hand, as if Jesus only appeared to die, Christ only appeared to die. No, the gospel is that Jesus actually did die. He died physically, and he was physically buried in a tomb. But then verse 4b, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. God didn't just foretell in the Old Testament scriptures that his special Savior would come and die, but also that he would rise from the dead. On the third day, since Jesus Christ was placed in the tomb, he rose again. The door of the tomb was then opened so that all could verify that he wasn't there anymore. This resurrection is important since it proves that, first, Jesus' sacrifice for sinners was accepted by God. They are clean. They are saved in him. But also, second, it is a testimony that those who believe in Jesus will obtain the same resurrection life as displayed in him. They will also be raised. And this, too, is not something merely foretold. It is a fact of history that the apostles witnessed, and they testify about it. This was a real physical resurrection. It happened. Jesus died, but he rose again. This is not a spiritual resurrection, as some maintain. This was not a mass delusion, which is impossible. This is not a trick. This is really the dead Lord restored to life. There is no true gospel. There is no true gospel hope without the miraculous physical resurrection of Jesus. And we know it really took place because also what verse 5 says. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Who's Cephas? Now Cephas is just the Aramaic form of the name Peter. Jesus didn't just mysteriously disappear and his disciples assumed or believed that Jesus rose from the dead. No, Jesus actually appeared to them after he rose. He appeared to them in the flesh. They saw him. He spoke to them. They spoke with him. He let them touch him. Verify, he's real. He's not some spirit or delusion. They gave him food and he ate it. That food was gone. This was not some ghost. He appeared to them. He spoke and explained everything to them that had happened show that it was all according to the scriptures, and then he commissioned them to preach 
this gospel, this message to the world. Now, in verse 5, it only mentions Jesus' closest 12 disciples, but they weren't the only ones who saw the appearance. You just keep reading on, verses 6 to 8, it actually describes hundreds of people that Jesus appeared to. They all became witnesses that Jesus really did die and rise again. And this is our good news. This is the gospel. And not just for Jews, but for all people, for all those who are under the sentence of death because of sin, which is every human being. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And he was buried, and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And he appeared to his disciples who became the eyewitnesses who wrote down and passed on the message to us. This is the one true marvelous message about what God has done. And we are commissioned to tell it to others. But this message requires a certain response which is the next part of evangelizing biblically. You must get the gospel message right, but you also must, 1B, you must get the gospel response right. You must get the gospel response right. You see, in evangelism, we Christians are looking for one fundamental response to the gospel. And do you know what that is? Scripture tells us. Mark 1.15 is a good example. Mark 1.15 says, this is actually Jesus speaking, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. Of course, that's not the only place. Acts 17.30, Acts 17.30 to 31, this is Paul preaching to Athenians at the Areopagus. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. And then there's John 3.16. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. There's only one proper response to the gospel message, and it's the one that Christ himself commanded. It must be, you repent and you believe. Or to give the noun forms, it must be repentance and faith. But what do those words mean? To repent means you fundamentally turn. You turn 180 degrees from everything that dishonors God, back to God. You ought to change your mind about yourself, about your sin, about God. You are no longer to want idols, to want sin. You want Jesus. You want obedience. You no longer want your own way. You want God's way. You no longer try to satisfy God's standard on your own. You can never be perfect. You turn to what God has provided. You believe. Now, repent and believe, they're really two terms for the same reality. They just emphasize different parts. Repent is you're turning away from something. Belief is really what you're turning to. When you believe, you fundamentally believe the Bible's gospel message as true. 
and you take it for yourself. More specifically, you believe that you are a sinner, just like God says you are, and you deserve what God says you deserve for your sin. Yes, I am worthy of hell, God. I have, obeyed, I have disobeyed you continually in my life. You believe that Christ really is the Son of God. He did die, he did rise again, and he did appear to his disciples. You believe that by trusting in him alone and what he accomplished, your sins are totally paid for. You have the righteousness of Christ himself to free you from death and to reconcile you, reconcile you to God once for all. You also believe that you now want to pursue your Lord, pursue your Savior, Jesus Christ, as his devoted disciple. You must repent and believe. That's what we're looking for when we give the gospel. The Bible promises that all those who repent and believe in Jesus in this way, they have eternal life. They have the life of God himself now and forever with the Holy Spirit given to them as a down payment. The Spirit of God himself comes to dwell inside that person. Now, where do repentance and belief take place for a person? Well, they take place in the heart. They take place in your mind. They take place in your inner person. Now, yes, repentance and faith will manifest themselves on the outside if they're real. If a true internal change has taken place, it will manifest on the outside in, for example, a verbal profession of faith. I believe. In, for example, a prayer to God, asking God for forgiveness, expressing trust in Christ, expressing commitment to God. Also in baptism. By immersion, you will express a public commitment to Christ and his church. And also in a new righteous pattern of behavior, you start to do what God commands. You start to live in a holy way, empowered by the Holy Spirit. These do accompany real repentance and faith. But these external changes, though, again, they do accompany, they should accompany repentance and faith, they are not in themselves, repentance and faith. They are not what brings about salvation. They are just the fruit on the tree, not the root. This is important to understand. The biblical gospel, the one true gospel, it does not provide a work, a ritual, or a prayer to save a person. It's all about the heart. It's all about the heart. Do you believe this good news? And do you therefore repent of your old way to follow Christ? How a person responds verbally, that should be a reflection of what's in the heart. Or some people can say something verbally that's not true in the heart. Or some people can say nothing verbally when a heart change has taken place. It's about what goes on in the heart. And this is what we are looking for in our evangelism. This is what we are calling people to in our evangelism. We're looking to give one fundamental message, and we're looking for one fundamental response. Repentance and faith in the heart. And we must zealously guard these 
fundamentals of biblical evangelism because there will always be a push, even within the church, in order to win more people or to make the message of Jesus less offensive to change these fundamentals of the gospel, to offer really what is a different gospel. This was even happening in New Testament times, right after the church was born. And the Apostle Paul had some choice words in Galatians 1, verses 6 to 9, about those who would seek to pervert the true and only saving gospel. I won't read that to you, but just to paraphrase, Paul says, Anyone preaching a gospel that is not the biblical gospel, even if that person is an apostle or looks and acts like an angel, that person, Paul says, should be considered accursed, anathema, devoted to God for destruction. And there are sadly many false gospels preached in the name of Christ today. But we must repudiate them all. We do not preach the prosperity gospel, that Christ came as the great genie to make you rich, healthy, and successful on the earth. We do not preach the therapeutic gospel, that Christ came as the great psychologist to enable you to reach self-fulfillment and self-esteem. We do not preach the gospel of works, that Christ came as the great lawgiver, lawgiver so that you can keep his rules and earn your way to salvation. We do not preach the gospel of social justice, that Christ came as the great liberator so that you can be freed from all earthly oppression. We do not preach the gospel of easy believism, that Christ came as your great buddy so that you can be saved without turning from your sin. And we do not preach the gospel of universalism, that Christ came as the great accommodator to save all those who are really sincere in whatever they believe. These are not the biblical gospel. These are lies. They come from the demons. They come from the pit of hell. They have taken true aspects of what is the real gospel, and they've twisted them. And we must say with Paul that whoever comes preaching these fake gospels, let them be accursed. Let them be given over to God for destruction. Because those who believe such false gospels will be devoted to destruction as well. Why such a severe condemnation on those persons? Because they are leading others to destruction. Pretending they're leading them to life. If we are to be faithful ambassadors, we dare not mess with the gospel. We must preach Christ's gospel, the apostolic gospel, the gospel of the Bible. And we must call for the proper response to that gospel. Now, what basic means does God give in the Bible for spreading the gospel and making disciples? Now, in one sense, the answer to that question should be obvious because I've been saying it already. can't even talk about the gospel without mentioning the proper means if you're talking biblically. Point 1C, you must get the gospel means right. Get the gospel message right. Get the gospel response right. Get the gospel means right. 
When I say means, I'm talking about how we do this. How do you give God's gospel to people? Answer, you preach it. You preach it. Just to say, you use words to proclaim and explain the gospel message from the Bible. You use words to proclaim and explain the gospel message from the Bible. That's how you give the gospel. And to see this clearly, turn over to 1 Corinthians 1. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 17 to 25. So back in the book of Corinthians, this is page 1140, by the way. What's the context here? Well, here Paul is confronting the Corinthians about another issue. This one was much more serious. There were divisions taking place in the church about who was each person's favorite teacher. Now, these divisions didn't have to do with who was a more faithful teacher or who was more earnest in his preaching, but this was all about who was more intellectually flashy, who was more philosophically astute, who seemed more impressive according to the rhetorical techniques and styles popular during that day, who preached with more demonstrable human wisdom and clever speech. They were dividing over this. Well, Paul confronts the Corinthians over this issue a number of ways, but one of the ways he does so is by drawing them to think about how people are saved in the first place, how people come to be reconciled with God in the first place. And look at what 1 Corinthians 1, 17 to 25 says. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world, through its wisdom, did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block. And to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So often, people end up altering or adding to the Bible's gospel because they conclude this gospel is not wise enough or strong enough to persuade anyone. No one is going to believe this. We're only going to offend them. So let's make it more philosophical. Let's give it some pizzazz. Let's bring in some popular ideas from the culture. Let's not mention certain things that people don't like. Let's major on what they do like. In fact, let's not preach that's such an outdated concept. Let's dialogue. Let's do theatrical productions and concerts. 
let's show people acceptance and just love them into the kingdom. Well, this contradicts what Paul teaches right here, especially in verse 21. These alterations and substitutions, according to human wisdom, they will not prove effective in saving anyone. Rather, verse 21 says, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. The way God has chosen to save sinners is by his people declaring the gospel message from Scripture, from Scripture, and then calling on the listeners to repent and believe. That is the way God has chosen to save people. By the way, that really is what preaching is. I know we often think about preaching as something special that only the pastors or the elders do in church on Sunday mornings. Now that is preaching, but that's not the only form of preaching. To preach, basically, the Greek word keruso, it just means to announce or proclaim. And that's just what an ambassador does, right? He gets a message from his government, and he delivers it to the intended recipient, and then he calls for a response. Kind of like the Roman ambassador we were talking about in the beginning. This is what God has called on all believers to do with his gospel. Not just the pastors and elders, all believers. You are all, we are all preachers. We're all proclaimers. We're all announcers. We're to do this with the people we meet in the world. Now, that's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Just proclaim, announce the message that God gave you, and call for a proper response. That's straightforward. That's simple. And that should be liberating. Because you don't need to come up with some snazzy technique, some extra message to get people to follow Christ. Just do what God told you to do. Proclaim his gospel call for a proper response. This can be in a simple conversation with another person. This can be in a public address, such as what I'm doing right now. This can be in a written form, like in a letter or a blog post or email. But however you do it, evangelize biblically. You'll need to use words to declare to others the gospel message and call for a proper response. Or perhaps you're still thinking, but come on, I, I just don't see how this is going to work. How will anyone believe in response to such a simple proclamation? Yeah, well, let's look again at this text. This is actually how God gets all the glory. Verse 18 says, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Or look down at verses 23 and 24 again. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews, the stumbling block, to Gentiles, foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Are you seeing this? The reason why simple gospel proclamation is effective to save is because God makes it effective. For those that he has called his chosen, his elect, he uses this so-called foolish word to be powerful, to strike them as the very power and wisdom of God. 
After all, this gospel, this word of the gospel, it is no ordinary word. It is the word of God, the word of God himself. It is a supernatural word. And we know in other contexts what the word of God is able to do. It was the word of God that created the world, you know, even as we're talking about in Sunday school. It was the word of God that gave life and breath to the first human. And it is the word of the gospel. It is God's word that is able to breathe new spiritual life into those God has chosen. You know Hebrews 4.12, which famously says, Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This word, even the gospel that Jesus gave us, it is a living word that reveals God and confronts you. It pierces you with its truthfulness like a sword does. So that if God is working in you, if God is opening your eyes, you cannot help but acknowledge it for what it is. You cannot help but repent and believe. You see, the Holy Spirit has to work inside you for all of this to happen. Otherwise, when you hear the message, oh yeah, it's just foolishness. It doesn't strike you as anything special, something you need to believe. In fact, it may only strike you as a menacing aroma of death from which you just want to get away. That's how Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 2.16. For those who are not called, it's just the aroma of death to death. The Spirit has to give you life. The Holy Spirit has to open your eyes to understand and to turn. Which is why Titus 3.5 says what it does. Titus 3.5. He, God, saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Regeneration means to be made alive again. To be saved, you must be born again, made alive again. You must be regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Without that, you will never be saved. You will never repent and believe. The Holy Spirit must work and give you new life. And God is pleased to marry this new birth by the Holy Spirit with the preaching of the gospel, with the simple proclamation of God's word. He brings them together. He says, this is how people will be saved. This is how they will come alive and follow me. So to say that another way, when you rely on simple gospel preaching to save souls rather than your own power or cleverness, then you give God free reign to do what only he can do, and that's give life to the dead. And this is what we see in the scriptures. 
Oh, let me say this before I give you some examples. We should note that man's greatest wisdom, his greatest technique, never got anyone into the kingdom of God. Maybe you got some verbal professions of faith, but no one got into the kingdom of God through you. Luke 18, 27 says, But what is impossible with man is possible with God. God has to do it. And we can see examples of God doing exactly this in the Bible. Lydia. Lydia is a good example in Acts 16, 14. Acts 16, 14. Paul goes out to this stream outside a certain town. There's some Jews and God-fearers gathering there, and he preaches the gospel. And listen to what Acts 16, 14 says. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, so a God-fearer, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. See how those things went together again? God was doing the work inside her, but Paul was preaching the gospel. And God was pleased that this would be the moment. She's alive. She believes. And this was also Paul's testimony about the Thessalonian believers. Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul says this, 1 Thessalonians 2.13, For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. This is a working word. This is a supernatural word that the Spirit uses to make someone alive. So then, do you see why it was so foolish for the Corinthians to focus on these non-essentials, preaching style, rhetorical flourish? and think that's where the power is? There's no power in that. You also see why it's foolish for any of us, any Christian today, to come up with a way to win people to Christ besides simply declaring his word. Gospel preaching is the only means that God has ordained to save souls. Nothing else will work. If you try, it's like exchanging God's sharp supernatural sword for a plastic butter knife. By the way, this is true in sanctification as well. That's why we preach expository preaching in this church. We trust the word of God to supernaturally change and transform us rather than man's wisdom. Same in counseling, same in evangelism. You go to the word. You use God's word. You use his gospel. You just simply proclaim it. So in your discipline of evangelism, you must preach the gospel. You cannot simply do Christian art as your form of evangelism. Nothing wrong with Christian art, but that's not, that's not what you've been called to do. You cannot simply do good works in front of people or to people as if that were your evangelism. Works are an important assistant to evangelism, but they're not evangelism. Ultimately, you must speak. You must proclaim. You must call on people to respond to the one true message of Christ with repentance and faith. You want to use something as a little springboard to that? That's fine. But you've got to speak. You've got to preach. Now, I do want to add a little clarifier. When the Bible teaches that we are to rely on simple gospel declaration in our evangelism, that does not mean that we do not also try to explain the Bible 
or reason from the Bible to persuade people to repent and believe. After all, this is exactly what we see the Apostle Paul doing. If you go back to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, remember this statement from Paul, 2 Corinthians 5, 20, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This is an appeal. This is pleading. This is begging. Or consider what we see Paul doing according to the record of the book of Acts. Again and again in the book, we see Paul doing the same thing. Acts 17, 2 and 3 is one example. Acts 17, 2 and 3. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them, that is the Jews, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. You see, brethren, gospel proclamation is not anti-intellectual. It's not as if in evangelism you are speaking magic words over people that will cause them to believe whether they comprehend or not. No, you don't just speak words at people. You are speaking words to people, trying to help them understand. You're not relying on rhetorical techniques or cleverness to bring people to faith, yet you are aware that it is not, it is not simply the declared word, but it is the explained word that the Spirit uses to give life. And this point of clarification makes me think of another account from the book of Acts. Do you remember that time when Philip is told by the Spirit to go into the desert and rendezvous with this Ethiopian eunuch who's riding along in his chariot? Well, Philip ends up running alongside that chariot, and he notices this foreign dignitary reading from the book of Isaiah. And listen to what unfolds. This is Acts 8, verses 30 to 31. Acts 8, verses 30 to 31. Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, well, how could I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, this leads to a wonderful question from the eunuch in his conversation with Philip about whether this passage, and he's reading Isaiah 53, whether it's about Isaiah himself or someone else. Acts 8.35 then says, Acts 8.35, Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. So do you see what happened? In response to the eunuch's question, Philip explained the gospel of Christ from the Bible in a way that the eunuch could understand. And what was the result? The eunuch believed. The eunuch believed and was baptized. He was saved. He was made alive by the Spirit. The Spirit used the preached word, proclaimed and explained to save this man's soul. And brethren, that is instructive for us. Because this shows us that we cannot simply quote Scripture to people without explanation or use words that they don't understand. If we just go back to how I started today's message, 1 Corinthians 15.3. For someone who doesn't have a background in the Bible, that verse probably 
doesn't have that much significance to them. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Who is Christ? What is a Christ? What are sins? What do these Scriptures say about Christ and sins? In your evangelism, you need to take account of what your listener knows and understands so that you know what's going to need more explanation as you proclaim to him the gospel. Otherwise, you may think you are declaring the gospel clearly and well, relying on the power of the Spirit, when in reality, your listener has no idea what you're talking about. And that's not simply because, oh, the hardness of heart and sin. No, it's because you're using words he doesn't understand. I remember hearing a story one time in seminary about some missionary monks during the medieval period. Believing in the power of God to save, they journeyed to a certain tribe of German barbarians and gave them the gospel. But the problem was, these monks didn't speak German. So they gave the gospel to the Germans in their own language, in the language that they spoke. Can you guess the result? The tribesmen didn't understand and therefore didn't believe. Eventually, these monks ended up getting attacked by the tribesmen because the tribesmen thought the monks were up to no good. Well, we don't want to fall into the same kind of mistake as these naive medieval monks. It is right that we declare the one true gospel of God's word, even by quoting the Bible. But let us not merely speak the Bible, but explain it. Don't just speak Christianese to people. Terms with meaning that are obvious to you may not be obvious to others. Or they may come from a religious background that defines those terms differently. They're talking about grace and faith. They're talking about grace and faith, but they don't mean the same thing that you do. You've got to take stock of that. Don't just put John 3.16 on a billboard or a sweatshirt and call that your evangelism. That's just the starting point of a gospel conversation. And that is not a replacement for a gospel conversation. So then, when it comes to the how of evangelism, we need to start with the most important principle. We must evangelize biblically. You must and we must speak the biblical gospel message. We must call people to respond appropriately to that gospel message with repentance and faith. And we must use the only fundamental means that God has ordained to save sinners with this gospel, and that is to preach it, to proclaim and explain it from the word of God. Now, when you do all this, you do not know exactly how God is going to work in a particular person, how he's going to respond. But you do know that generally, this is how God saves people. The person you're talking to might respond in repentance and faith. If not now, then later. But however that person responds, you can also know that you are being a faithful ambassador of Christ. And that's the truly important thing. As many have said, the true mark of Christian success is not results, but faithfulness. Are you being a faithful ambassador by evangelizing biblically? All right, now that was just the first principle. As I said, next week we'll attempt, I think there's a good chance, 
who will actually do all the other five principles for maximizing your effectiveness in evangelism. But as we close, I ask that you ask yourself two questions before the Lord. First, do I believe the biblical gospel? Do I believe the biblical gospel? And second, do I preach the biblical gospel? Do I preach the biblical gospel? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, your gospel is glorious. Oh Lord, it reveals from beginning to end that salvation is all of the Lord. You have to do it all, God. We rebelled. We became slaves to sin. We did not want your salvation. We could not even comprehend your salvation without the regenerating intervention of the Spirit. You have to do everything. But because you do everything, that's why you get all the glory. It is indeed your mercy. It is your tender mercy that has worked to bring us to salvation. You chose us from before the foundation of the world. You worked in us by your spirit. You brought faithful gospel declarers to us. You spoke your word to us through those people. And you made us alive by the work of the spirit and by the preaching of your word. But it didn't just stop there. You're continuing to work in us, God. Even our sanctification, as we apply the hard effort, as we apply the responsible rigor that is a discipline of grace, we recognize that where does the power come from? Where does the change come from? It comes from you. You're the one who's doing it. You're the one who's making us more like Christ. You're the one who's enabling us to give the gospel and to even see other souls saved. It's all of you. Your power, your wisdom, your wonder. So, Lord Jesus Christ, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, let your name be praised. Let you have all the glory. Even, Lord, as we look to apply this word today, God, we want to direct all honor and praise to you. You have done it all. We are just glad to be part of the process. Help us, Lord to truly put this word into practice. We know our responsibility and calling from you. And we also trust that when we proceed in faith, you will enable us to do it because you keep your promises. So we'll hold you to that, God. Forgive us for where we have strayed from the true gospel and true proclamation of it. But Lord, we come back now in repentance, God, and in faith and what you will accomplish through us. Be glorified, Lord God. In Jesus' name, amen.